0: Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun <laughs> back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Hi. Right. Uh, We're here today to talk about regulatory and reimbursement. As Joe says, uh, what does Joe say? What did you say? You bring
1: tastes that taste great together. There you go. But they don't usually taste great together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're more like oil and water, aren't they? Or are you here to tell us different?
0: Most people aren't thinking about them at the same time. That's for sure. And then what they think will work for one, they think is going to work for the other. And that's not true. So that's, that's what we're kind of here to explore today. In your world, Nick, what is regulatory to you? Where does that come into play? Oh, wait, first, first off, for those of you who don't know us, I'm Michelle, I'm in regulatory, and this is Nick, and Nick is an expert in reimbursement. Nick and I work together, but again, we are on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum of bringing a device to market.
2: So to answer Michelle's question, um, you know, what, what is regulatory to a reimbursement guy? I've, I've said this, and let me say something very forcefully at the top of this meeting is that, how do I say this? Regulatory for me, it may as well be a different, in a different galaxy. It doesn't make any difference as far as reimbursement is concerned, other than essentially a box check. Are you FDA cleared or FDA approved? Have you gone through the appropriate regulatory bodies like CLIA, if you're a diagnostic test, laboratory developed test? In that regard, I am more than comfortable if somebody comes to me and says, well, Nick, I've got a 510K product, uh, we did class two, or we're a PMA, or we're a laboratory-developed test, or whatever. You know what? What do you think? And I go, I don't know. Go talk to Michelle. I'll do exactly what Joe does and say, I, I'm not a re- regulatory guy. So you could think of regulatory and reimbursement running in parallel because there is a lot that you can do that would appeal to payers at the same time that you can do things that would appeal to the FDA. But <clears throat> As far as I'm concerned, I, I frankly don't know the last time I asked a company their regulatory status. It just doesn't make any difference for most reimbursement. Now, Medicare, you know, we can talk about some details, but, but I'm already making the assumption. You've already spoken with Michelle. You've already got regulatory clearance or you're going to in the next 12 months or whatever it is. But really, it doesn't make any difference as far as I'm concerned with, with strict reimbursement. So, I think Michelle, during this, I might double talk a little bit because you can't get reimbursement, and it wouldn't matter even if you did if you didn't have fDA approval clearance yes.
0: it's a by the time people get to you, it's a foregone conclusion that they've gone through the regulatory path
2: yes, mm-hmm. yeah, and I would say i mean i I still get people that will say, you know Nick's a regulatory expert, and it'll sound like. I think some people get, you know, reimbursement and regulatory mixed up, which is the purpose of this conference today. And I'm like, I don't know hardly anything about regulatory. I mean, I know enough, like they say, to be dangerous. I, you know, I know class two versus a class three, you know, I, that type of stuff, but that's not my world. That's Michelle's.
0: So. And then vice versa. I know enough about reimbursement to know when my clients are talking crazy. And I'm like, I, I, I know enough to say, well, I—that's I, not how it works. Talk to Nick. So we're 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 hoping to dispel some some common myths here today. So Nick, um, let's talk codes. In in my world, there is a product code, which is a three-letter code that already exists from the FDA, and you have to find which of these product codes best describes your product and its intended use. Now, on on rare occasion, you can have more than one product code if you're combining existing technologies and you're not creating new risks or new intended uses. But I, I have customers that think the product code that they choose for the FDA somehow is linked or informs their reimbursement in their next steps. And they are they have dictated to me like, oh, Michelle, I don't want to use that product code, even though it's not only the best fit, but the easiest regulatory path, because they're like, no, I want a de novo so that I can say I'm this brand new thing and, and get a new code. And at that point, they're not talking about reimbursement. They're, 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 they're trying to make the link between how they got FDA clearance to what they're going to be eligible for in reimbursement. And then I've also seen people say, oh, I looked up devices that were cleared under this code and I don't like how they're reimbursed, so I'm not going to let you submit a 510 k under that. And I'm like, that's not a thing.
2: No, you're exactly right. (laughs) So again, I don't, I mean, I've had, when I say consulting, I mean, that could be anywhere from a little 20 minute phone call all the way through a big engagement or something, hundreds of companies. And I've never once asked them what their regulatory product code was so that I could best assess what their reimbursement strategy should be. That, like I said, they're in, they're in semi different universes. So let's say that a company comes to you, Michelle, and they get a five ten K, um, de novo, whatever it is, you know, you, again, I don't even know the vernacular. You would know that better, and you say, guys, here's what you are. I just called the FDA. We did all the stuff. We did the trial that the FDA would require for this distinction, and you're good to go. As far as the FDA is concerned, you can start marketing your your product. And if that company did, and many, many, many of them do, um, they're going to hit a brick wall first with coding, our coding. excuse me, CPT, DRG, ICD-10, HICPics, APC groupers, you know, all all of the reimbursement coding world, then they're going to hit a brick wall with coverage, and then they're going to hit a brick wall with payment, possibly, right? I'm going to give a a verbose example here. But when they come to me, the first thing I would say is, okay, let's talk about coding. What codes do you think you're going to use? well, if they have this new medical device, some new you know, stent or catheter or whatever this thing is, I'm going to say, okay, tell me about it. How is it used? And they say, well, we're going to sell this to the hospital. Um, the hospital is going, all the physicians in the cardiology unit are going to use it. They implant it in the patient's neck. The bill goes to that patient's insurance company. And by the way, there's already a CPT code for this. And I go, no, there's a CPT code for the implantation of a device in a patient's carotid artery. And they go, yeah, we're, we're, that's what we are. And I say, yes, but is that code set up to reimburse for your product? Because an insurance company is gonna say, yeah, we know about carotid artery stenting, but we know about Smith and & Nephew's and Boston Scientific's and Medtronics, you know, St. Jude's device, not yours, yours is brand new. And secondly, do you have a picks code? HCPCS, that's how we're gonna get reimbursed for buying your thing, not just for implanting it. CPT code is for the procedure. Hickpix code is for the device to get reimbursed for the purchase of the, the actual unit. And so, uh, Michelle, you and I have talked about this, the, the strategy in which a company should go about getting a Hickpix code is crucially important. So I was involved with a company a while ago, we ended up getting a PICS code, and <clears throat> in my mind, under the assumption that in parallel with getting the new Pix code, so that when the physician spends $100 on this, they can bill and get reimbursed for this, not just for the implantation of it, that the clinical trials we were gonna do at the same time the PICS code application was gonna go through would be done at the same time. Well, that's a plenty of time to get a clinical trial going, so that when you are granted the new code by CMS, you have the evidence that warrants the reimbursement of that code. If you don't need a picks code, don't get one. And there's rationale about how you go about choosing whether or not you need a new product code. But I hear that stuff all the time where companies will say, you know, we're good, we already have a code. Well, no, Smith and & Nephew and Boston Scientific and those guys that have done the research to show that, that code is worth reimbursing. They've done the work, but you haven't. You're a brand-new product. So, an insurance company will have that code, either a CPT or HCPCS code or whatever, in a big book of uh, picks codes, picks level one or level two, and they're going to take each of those codes and they're going to set it up in their system as covered, possibly covered, or not covered. And when your product code comes through, excuse me, let me use, when your picks code comes through, sorry, Michelle, that on that when that happens, <clears throat> excuse me, the insurance company is gonna say, well, what is this? And they're gonna say, oh, it's the Nick Anderson carotid artery stent. And they go, we've never heard of that. This is set up to be covered for the Medtronic Smith and & Nephew and Boston Scientific stent, but not the Nick Anderson stent. He hasn't done the work, denied. And then the bill goes back through the system and everyone gets mad at you because you didn't do the proper studies to warrant reimbursement for that code.
1: You just, you, you didn't make it murkier, you made it scarier and more expensive.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, not to sound pejorative, but welcome to MedTech. I mean, you you've gotta go sit down with Michelle and she's gonna say, okay, tell me what you got. And I'll say, I have this thing and it goes up through the femoral artery into here and does this and this and this. And she'll go, great. I have a schematic in my brain of what you're going to need to do to get the FDA to say, yes, you can now begin marketing your product. Then after that, you, or during that, you should go talk with Nick and Nick's team and Nick's friends and all that. And we're going to help you figure out, okay, fine. If, if Michelle said, you're a PMA, fine, you're a PMA. What did Michelle tell you you need to do for clinical trials? And they'll say, she told us about a hundred patients in a cohort study. And I'll say, oh, it's going to be enough for reimbursement, because that might be enough to get the FDA to to sign a, you know, letting you go to market. But that might not be enough for Cigna and Aetna and Blue Cross, who are your customers." And getting
1: reimbursement is not a universal. I'm reimbursable. It's I'm reimbursable here, here, and here. But these guys said, "No, I don't. I can't explain it, and I'm sorry."
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so depending on your product, if your product is primarily in a disease that is the Medicare population, 65 and older type product, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, whatever, then without a doubt, your primary customer is going to be Medicare. Well, that's a different game. We got to play that game. How do we get you a local coverage determination with Neridian and Novitas and CGS and WPS and FCSO and all of that? How do we get you a national coverage determination so you're covered across the entire United States for Medicare? Then we have to talk about commercial papers. Now we got to go to Aetna. Then we have to go to Cigna. Then we have to go to BCPS.
1: You confused me there. When you said 65 plus Medicare, isn't Medicare a guy to convince? You just mentioned like 10 other names that I haven't heard of.
2: I know. When everybody on this call, when you get a minute, go to Google, and type in CMS space M-A-C MAP, M-A-P. So these MACs are private companies. I don't know how many people know this. Medicare is adjudicated by 12 private companies. So it's not the government in Washington, D.C. when Nick Andrew, well, when my grandfather's claim comes through and it goes to the government, it's not that. It goes to a private company. Since I live in Utah, I'm in the Noridian Medicare group. Uh, if you live in Florida, you're in the FCSO group. And if you're in the US Virgin Islands, you're in the FCSO group. So a physician in Miami that treats a Medicare patient, that bill will go to FCSO. And, and a medical director at FCSO is going to say, wait, what is this thing? I've never heard of intercarotid stenting for an 80-year-old with asymptomatic, you know, whatever. Then they'll do a health technology assessment, and that one payer group, just FCSO, which is Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands, they will determine if Medicare is going to reimburse for that, just for that jurisdiction. Well, that's one jurisdiction. Now, it's a big one. Most Medicare patients live in Florida. But you've got to go rinse and repeat that 10 other time, 11 other times in each jurisdiction of Medicare across the United States, unless you can get a national coverage determination, an NCD, one big blanket one, but that's major. To get an NCD is very, very difficult. And if you're a screening or diagnostic test, it's even harder. We better talk a little Michelle
1: stuff because the questions are coming in fast and furious about reimbursement, I mean.
0: I, I want to back up a little bit because you, you mentioned uh, evidence and data a, a, a couple of different kinds, And we talk about this a lot together is the point of the FDA and any data that the FDA is going to ask for, it's purely to demonstrate safety and efficacy and clinical benefit. It has nothing to do with a reimbursement model, with a healthcare economy, with anything that you need to prove to any of these payer organizations that Nick talked about. So I have had customers that are so in love with their own science and technology, they have been just blind and are shocked that the FDA even asked for like a small 20, 50 patient study. And then they think that um, that okay they got that, that okay if they're having trouble swallowing that the FDA wants to see data on 20 patients, what do you think the reimbursement guys are gonna ask for? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it may be orders of magnitude different than proving safety and efficacy. And supposedly, there, in 2011, FDA opened up a new pathway to kind of try to parallel path technology with, uh, where you start the conversation with FDA and CMS simultaneously so that you build a study that can hopefully uh, kill two birds with one stone. But I've heard very little out of that pilot program um, since it started. And, uh, and again, you're trying to prove two, two very different things, so it's very hard to build those same outcomes into a single, a single study. Something you said um, that
1: made me think, it, it sounds to me as though FDA doesn't care how stupid your idea is as long as it doesn't hurt people and is safe. Correct. So you can get something approved that has okay. no chance of it commercialization.
0: sure you have some kind of clinical benefit, that there's an actual need.
1: Yeah, yeah, I get that. But they might say, you know, there are 10 other guys doing this, then I don't care.
0: They won't say that specifically, but they don't even, they, they they have no interest in your commercialization plan, if your device makes sense, if anybody will pay for it. that That's not in their wheelhouse at all.
2: You know, the example that I give, Joe, I've given this during the 10X Med Device Conference that I'll talk about, you know, how many of us, when we go buy a new car, and we go down to the car dealership and we see a new Toyota Corolla and we look at the sticker in the window and it says uh, 29 highway and 25 city MPG. How many of us actually believe that? that I take that sticker in the window as just kind of a baseline idea and then I discount it for where I live. Well, that's the EPA. It's the the car equivalent of the FDA in humans. And literally how they do that, how they determine this is they take your car and they put it on rollers. They make Toyota do it. They blow a fan at 65 miles per hour at the radiator and they turn on the car and they collect the exhaust out the back and so on and so forth. And that's how they determine miles per gallon. That is not what we would call in health economics and reimbursement and all this real-world evidence. It's not. That's an FDA trial. So when Michelle says, you need to go do 10 patients, and here's what that will look like. Uh, Michelle, I don't know if you design those types of studies or if there's some framework, but you say, guys, I think you're going to need to do 10 patients. That is in the most 65-mile-an-hour fan blowing on a roller that I can think of in the medical world. And then I take that and I go, guys, that's fine. If that's what you needed to do to get, re- to get regulatory, now let's go do a systematic literature review, a big $50,000 project. Let's go pull all the literature and let's see what's actually getting reimbursement. Oh, lo and behold, it's not 10 patients. It's 7,000 prospective over 36 months. You yeah, that's a big difference from what the FDA needed to see. You know, all of us, when we go buy a car, you go to Edmonds, you go to Car and Driver, because you want to see the real-world evidence, the RWE. You want to see how that Toyota Corolla actually performs on the road, and with an actual driver, with actual wind, with the windows down, and a car seat, and obese, and everything. That's what I want to see when I go buy a new car. So it's, it, it, is, it is a very good analogy for the difference between the clinical trials that you would have to do to get regulatory FDA, EPA approval, versus what you have to do to get Edmonds and Car and Driver, meaning Cigna and Aetna, to sign off and say, hey, now we're talking. You guys actually took this device out of the perfectly perfect, perfect FDA trial world and you went and did it with a CRO, a contract research organization, you went and did it in 900 patients, prospective, randomized over five years, and you showed extraordinary outcomes. That's real world evidence. You are the best analogy giver I know.
1: Seriously, (laughs) you have an analogy for everything and you make it so easy to understand, so.
2: Thank you. But I don't, I, I gotta say this again, that does not, detract from what you have to do with Michelle. And if nobody, nobody's board of directors is going to say, okay, Michelle, what do you think? And Michelle says 10 patients and they go, great, let's do a thousand. You know, everyone wants the bare minimum. Let's just check the FDA box. Let's get that over with. Then we'll deal with Nick Anderson and his payer shenanigans. Um, and I can't fault companies for that. At least you got FDA clearance. The share price goes from a dollar a share to four dollars a share instantaneously, even though you're still not ready to go to market. Even though legally you can. So I'm not saying if Michelle tells you ten patients in your study that she's wrong. No, Michelle is playing in that perfect world, right, Michelle? That's you're telling them the correct thing. Let Nick go do his thing, I'm doing my thing for regulatory.
1: We have our first contestant on the Nick and Michelle show, it's Jonathan Saul. His mic is
3: open, his camera is not.
0: Hi, John. Good
3: morning. Hi. I have a couple questions. Um, I appreciate the analogy, but I would love to hear a story about somewhere uh, or sometime where the two of you work together with a product uh, or device that achieved that success that went directly to the thousand person alignment uh, because they had either the capital to do that or they had the foresight to say it's worth uh, making those steps um, in advance and then the other thing that I was hoping to understand is just to have some kind of framework to uh, interpret pricing in in the form of reimbursement just to have a very 50,000 foot level comprehension of how reimbursement works from a from a price tier standpoint and is is there anything in the regulatory stance makes the work between the two of you very very valuable for a company does that make sense yeah Um, I can give
2: you, I I don't have an example off the top of my head of one with me and Michelle together, but I have an example that I think most people on this call will understand. I think it'll still answer your question, how Cologuard came to market. I'm not a Cologuard fan. I think Cologuard incentivizes healthy people that should be getting colonoscopies to wait till they get cancer, but they're an $11 billion company. They're doing something right whether I like their product or not. Well, I'm, I just did some research for somebody the other day, and I think what we found is that they did the small study that the FDA required at the exact same time they did a 9,800 patient prospective study, and they were published within like three months of each other. So what they did is they essentially, in so many words, talked to Michelle, and Michelle said, you need to do 483 patients the number was, I can't remember. And then they talked to Nick, and Nick goes, you need to do 9,900 patients to get reimbursement. And they go, great, we'll do both. But I think that's what they did is, Michelle, what do you want? Great, we'll go give that to you. Nick, what do you want? And let's go run those two things at the same time, because what's going to get us regulatory may not get us reimbursement. Michelle, did you have a comment too?
0: So so John, to, to, to your point on the, the regulatory side. Now, many of you know, I make the joke or the analogy of myself to a, a grief counselor, and I'm the regulatory grief counselor. Um, most of my clients are startups and are in very early stages. And they're still in that, that they're still playing in the denial and anger phase of what it's going to really take to bring their, their product to market, not just with the FDA, but with the, the reimbursement strategy. So unfortunately, most of my clients have been so narrow, narrow-minded in, in terms of regulatory and reimbursement, but so in love with their, their science, their technology, and this is the next best thing to medtech and sliced bread, that, um, that, that 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 they just aren't thinking this strategically early on to be able to really properly parallel path all, all of this at the same time.
3: So that that makes me think when you have the the opposite where you have very business focused uh clients and they're saying Nick am I going to make more money getting reimbursement or am I going to get more money trying to get through some hurdles that Michelle can help me with so that I can hit the consumer market and be in every Walmart and CVS in the in the world uh you know is, are you starting to see more and more of those types of discussions?
2: Yeah. And in fact, I, just an email this morning before I joined this call, I got one, a company that has a very uh, direct-to-consumer product that could very super high tech. They just raised a ton of money a couple of weeks ago, and that could be a discussion to have with them Is saying, do you guys really want reimbursement? Do you really want to play this game? of HICPIC, CPT, randomized prospective nonsense for a product that you could sell tomorrow with Michelle's blessing at aisle six at Walgreens. What, if you can do that, now you might make this much instead of this much, but you can make this much today.
0: Um, and just one point to that, to where the regulatory and reimbursement strategy would, would overlap when you're trying to move from, a, to a direct to consumer model, one thing that the the FDA considers OTC a change in indications for use. And if your product, your FDA product code isn't already indicated for OTC use, you may be getting yourself into a situation where you have to do with other 510k. And usability studies to demonstrate that a lay person can walk up to a shelf in the Walgreens, buy your device and use it properly without hurting themselves, and without the supervision of a a physician.
1: Yeah, Michelle, um, what what struck me is um, somewhat ironic in, in what you said before is your customers come to you and they're like, oh, 10, you know, I'm gonna have to do these this relatively small number of things to get it through FDA. And they're like, oh, I'm in denial and grief. You may be counseling them. I guess you're not saying, you know, just wait till you leave my office.
0: <laughs> it's baby, baby steps. Well, and, you know, people have trouble stomaching when I tell them that a 510K typically takes 80 to 120 hours to properly offer, uh, review, and prepare the, the e-copy. And, uh, and they have trouble stomaching that. And I'm like, okay, this is like your shot at the FDA kind of uh, stamp. And and you, you, you think it's gonna take less than a reasonable effort of two total weeks to to, to to do it properly. And so like, what do you think that that conversation with, with Nick is gonna be like early on if they think 80 hours to write a 510K is a lot?
1: Our next contestant is Alan Cooper. He has a question for you both. If I wanted to develop a, let's say a 3D printed custom HIP uh implant and that was my product what would be some insights to know on the Mm -hmm. regulatory side for how would i even go about getting that through the fda because as far as i know currently (laughs) or i know that would be tricky to get to the fda if it's custom 3d printed and then reimbursement side i have no idea how that would work as far as with that product you're not necessarily proving out the product because it's a custom process of creating the hip implant so i was just curious what insights you
0: had on that well from a regulatory perspective that's definitely an area where the fda is still developing their kind of thinking and positioning on it it would be super important to make sure you know not only any guidance documents that are already out but any that are, are in draft, any maybe public workshops they might have had, just so you can get an idea of where their thinking is at uh, on that technology. Um, something fascinating because I'm working with a 3D uh, um, dental implant that has been on the market for a long time in the EU, because under the MDD, those didn't even require the no, a, a, notif- a technical file notified body uh, involvement. So, it's hmm. recent, the, the regulation under MDR has recently changed, uh, and, but it still doesn't require the level of oversight that a 3D printed dental implant is going to require for the, for, for the U.S. Um, so, so, that would be important to understand the regulatory strategy to be able to inform your marketing strategy. You know, uh, most of the time, you guys have heard me like, right now, just don't try to go to Europe because it's the regulatory wise is such a mess. But this is one of those kind of rare exceptions where it may make sense to explore Europe first, despite the MDD and MDR debacle.
2: So on the reimbursement side, I, I usually say this about diagnostic tests, Alan, where though you can more acutely diagnose, can you more acutely treat? That's kind of the whole game with precision medicine and personalized medicine and all these, you know 21st century idioms that have come about that yes i can i can do a i have the striker knee that i can pull off the shelf for total knee arthroplasty or hemi arthroplasty or total you know whatever total joint and i'm going to get this outcome versus a 3d printed and i'm going to get if you can see i'm going to get this outcome <laughs> you know well from a reimbursement perspective if you're going to get a good outcome We would look at it and say, okay, have you done the clinical trials? Have you shown safety and efficacy and all that kind of stuff? How much are you charging for this? Because maybe that much of an improvement is one month, or let's do six months of additional delaying of a revision surgery because of aseptic loosening. Well, six months pushing off an an 85-year-old's total knee replacement is substantial. So, um, maybe that 3D-printed knee is actually worth something much uh, substantial, you know? Now, if if the total knee coming off the shelf is, you know, $10,000 and yours is $30,000 because it's precision medicine, well, you better be showing an additional, you know, $20,000 worth of benefit. So, you better be shoving off the revision surgery by an extra 5 or 10 years not by six months. So precision medicine has been, it's, it's what we all want. I mean, CRISPR is precision medicine, you know, all these new things is precision medicine, but from a reimbursement standpoint, it can be a real letdown, because you go, yes, I can give that guy exactly what he needs, but really, it doesn't make a big clinical difference in the end if I would have just given him the off-the-shelf standard thing we've used for the last 10 years.
0: Well, and and you just, I've mentioned that same word or or term throughout this call, clinical benefit. You know, and this, this might be an area where FDA says, well, that's great, maybe it's safe and effective, but we don't really perceive any clinical benefit, so what's the point?
1: I'm thinking as it relates to evidence, I don't know how you would aggregate the evidence of every 3D-printed, customized experience versus what if I just gave them the
2: Zimmer implant. What I would recommend is that if Allen's company, let's say it's, you know, hypothetical 3D-printed knees, do an RCT, get, uh, get 50 patients wow. whatever the correct number that have the off-the-shelf and then have Allen's company take another group of 50 patients that are gonna have a TKA, total knee arthroplasty, and then compare the outcomes of the two after 48 months and go, look, those guys that got the 3D printed precision medicine, total knee arthroplasty, had 5% fewer of these, 22% fewer of those, and so on. And if you found equivalence, would,
1: would a reimbursement agent yeah. say, you know what, There was no statistically
2: significant difference, so why am I paying more for this? Don't pay more. So that would be a cost minimization analysis, not a cost effectiveness analysis. And we would say Allen's knee is non-inferior to the standard of care. Non-inferiority is a fantastic commercial go-to-market strategy to say, we are no worse than the standard of care, but by the way, we're 20% less expensive. So that's the that would be a gut-wrenching decision for Alan Allen's board of directors to go, dang it, we did the study and we're not we don't have superior outcomes. Can we still do these 3D printed knees instead of 10000 dollars Can we do them for five? Undercut striker and go to market with a non-inferiority strategy? That that could totally work. Mr. FDA, do
1: you have a No, this is a question it has to do with the medical economics. Have you ever developed a protocol with a device company where you've Nick have taken a look at it and said, okay, this the procedural costs. We need to get a better grasp on procedural costs and ancillary equipment, hospital stay, uh, you know, read, you know, follow up, whatever, and and then have a study that's got clinical significant endpoints that satisfies Fda, but also has a lot of economic data in it to show that it's a, it's a good deal and should be reimbursed have you ever, have done have you ever had input on a protocol design?
2: Yeah. and in fact, I'm doing one as we speak and just submitted one to a company just a few days ago and it was exactly what you just described, Larry. and I spent four years on Intermountain Healthcare's Value Analysis Committee, the VAC, and we would, so I've been on the other side of the table too where I'm the one reviewing this for Intermountain Healthcare going, not, not as a payer, I was also a payer, but on the hospital side of that job that I had for seven years going, wait a minute, guys, you're selling us capital equipment and you're trying to price this and do health economics as though you're disposable you know, and and have some funny discussions. I mean, some of these roundtables were really kind of funny about these companies that had raised 50 million bucks and were missing the mark entirely. And so, sorry for the roundabout answer, but yes, that if I had to sum up what most companies come to me for, it's to do exactly that and to say, look, will you work with our biostatistician and let's go pull the literature and make sure that we're hitting the endpoints that are going to be most significant to either the hospital or the insurance company, depending who our customer is, if it's... Sue? Hi, yeah,
0: I had a question. If you have a a new device, then, and there are two predicate devices you're comparing it to for your 510 k clearance. If, you know, for reimbursement, how do you come up with a new code?
2: Those, I, I see those as two separate things, so... You're saying if if you have a product, there's already a, when you say predicate, you're talking Michelle's language. I don't really care about predicates from a reimbursement standpoint, but I would say if there, if, go to Alan Cooper's question and it, hypothetical technology of a total knee arthroplasty that's 3D printed, precision medicine designed just for you versus an off the shelf one, that the payer would do what's called an HTA, a health technology assessment. There's information like you wouldn't believe online about HTAs. Uh, there's HTA review organizations like NICE and Cochrane and Hayes. It, and they would look at the standard of care's data and say, what, do you, what is the standard outcome I could expect after a total knee arthroplasty at 36, 48, and 60 months? and they, you know, here's, here's what I expect on aseptic loosening and, you know, uh, revision surgeries and so on. Now let's look at Sue's outcomes, and we're going to compare those. So to use the term predicate, I know that you were just, you know, that, that's the term in the regulatory world. In the reimbursement world, we just say standard of care. So the standard of care would be the off-the-shelf total knee that Stryker and Medtronic have been making for a million years. Uh, and how does your technology compare it to the outcomes we would expect to get from that? And if you go do that study and you see that you're non-inferior, meaning you're equivalent, you're just as good as them, then you better charge less so you have a good cost utilization and cost minimization analysis. If you're more expensive and you're not as good, you're dead in the water.
0: What if you're better?
2: If you're better, go ahead and charge a few more bucks. You know, and that's where... Yeah, today-
0: yeah. You have to have the data and the healthcare economy study to prove it.